The following message entitled, Instructions for Church Life, Part 9 of the series, In Light of His Coming, was given by Joe Ryer on the 16th of June, 2013, at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Good morning, everyone. If you can make your way to your seats, we're going to get started. If you have a Bible, if you could open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming this morning. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. Um, Today is not going to be a Father's Day message, but I did want to start with a... uh, of just a dumb thing I did as a dad and a husband to get us started. I've done many dumb things over the years. To punish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So shorthand would be respect your leaders. And the description in, in verses 12 and 13, it's that of the role of a pastor. And one thing that comes out in Paul's letters, especially at the end of this letter, is he uses the term brother over and over again. And the idea there behind the word brother is it can mean brother and sister. It's a family term. And so when Paul's writing to this church, and when God's speaking to us, he wants us to see the church as a family. Because of Jesus living for us and dying for us and rising from the dead for us, we've been adopted. We are Brothers and sisters in Christ, like it or not, we are. We are family. And like family, we're going to rub at times, but we are family. So, he says, brothers, respect your leaders. And one of the reasons he calls them to respect the leaders is because of the nature of the office, the nature of the job. It's even more so than the individuals, it's it's what they're called to do. Before I was a Christian, I did a lot of bad things, and I did not like police at all. I I despised police officers, and I was afraid of police officers. But when I became a Christian at the age of 19, that all changed. And now as a dad who is a homeowner, I love seeing police around our house and driving down our street, because I, I realize what they do. They protect us. They keep our community safe. They make sure my, my kids are safe. And I don't have to know every individual police officer to have value and respect for the office, for what they do. Well, that's what Paul is calling us to, to respect our leaders, to respect pastors. First Peter, in 1 Peter 5, Peter gives a charge to pastors that I think helps us understand some of the things that pastors are called to do. He says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, 1-4, through 4, So I exhort the elders among you, the pastors among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading 
crown of glory. One of the primary images that the Bible has for pastors in the Bible is that of shepherding sheep. And so Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's, he's the perfect shepherd. And he calls men, certain men who, who meet certain qualifications spelled out in the Bible, to shepherd, to be under shepherds of God's people. Now the challenge for most of us is, is we've never lived as shepherds. We never lived out in the wilderness. And we, we, we never had to do what shepherds do. So we can lose the, the, just the weight of what it meant to be a physical shepherd of sheep. Here's a, a brief description. To be a shepherd of sheep in biblical times was to really be committed to a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week task of watching over a flock of sheep. Some who were, were tangled up in briars, some that were about to go over cliffs, some that were fighting and biting each other, some that were threatened by other animals, predators coming in. And so the shepherd was skilled in many tasks, and he had the task of feeding, of leading, and of protecting. And it, it was a, a weighty task. And spiritually speaking, that's what pastors are called to do. We're called, with Jesus as our chief shepherd, to shepherd the flock of God among us. We don't do it perfectly. Jesus does it perfectly. But we're to be committed to teach you guys and care for you guys and protect you from harm when we, we can. And it's a, it's a weighty task. It's a weighty job. Just like being a police officer. That's a weighty task. Here's a few things it doesn't mean. So, so he's calling us here to respect our leaders, to esteem them highly. But this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Christians should have a blind allegiance to their pastors. So this isn't just follow your pastor no matter where he goes. No, you have God's Word, you have God's Spirit, and your primary allegiance is to Jesus Himself. And so when the pastor is leading the way this book is leading and the Bible makes clear and you're convinced of it, then, then you follow and you're excited. Where, where that departs, you should depart. So it doesn't mean a blind allegiance. It doesn't mean that it is wrong to disagree with us as your pastors. So at times you will disagree with things that we teach or things that we do or both at the same time. And that doesn't mean we, we, we shouldn't talk to each other about those things. It's very appropriate to, to bring those things to us and, and we'll wrestle through them together with God's Word. And, and where we miss it, we will hopefully own up to that. And that's why in this section, Paul says, in verse, at the end of verse 13, he says, be at peace among yourselves. What, what he means there is, both as you're respecting the leaders, and as the church is responding to that, it's a two-way street. The, the church should respect the leaders, but the, the leaders should be seeking very diligently to be at peace with church members as well. It is a two-way street. We, like you, are forgiven sinners and being slowly changed by Jesus over time. So Jesus is the perfect pastor. We are under shepherds called to do it. But for a vibrant, healthy church, one thing that Paul reminds them of is to respect their leaders because of the work that they do. That wasn't too bad. Number two, instruction for church life. Care for one another. God would tell us, 
to care for one another. Now, I just described what we do as pastors is to care for one another. But in the Bible, throughout the New Testament, it's obvious and so clear that the care isn't to just come from the pastors. It's to come from each other, from one another. Look at verses 14 and 15. He gives us a description of what this care might look like. So he asks a question in verse 12 to respect your leaders. Now he's going to crank up the intensity. In verse 14 he says, And we urge you, brothers or brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but all we seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul here is urging us as church members to care for one another. To make sure that we are doing all the things described in these two verses. That we are committed not just to pastors leading and caring, but as a church family to be caring for one another. Now in order to do this, we have to be open and honest with one another. It's hard to care for someone when we don't know how to care. When we don't know what's wrong when we don't know the situation. And so, the best way we can care for one another is to be open and honest about our lives. Some of you may have heard the the quote from Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century uh, famous British pastor, who said, the local church is the dearest place on earth. And there's truth to that because Jesus loves the church, and cares for the church, God's Spirit is in the church, But I think another description would be the local church is the messiest place on earth. If we're honest and open about our struggles and our conflicts and our our battle to fight this Christian fight of faith, it's messy. There's nothing pretty about it at times. And I, I think, like even my own kids, when they come in on Sunday morning, man, they're they're cleaned up, they got Bibles in their hands, they're smiling. Uh, it looks so good. That's not always the case at home, even on the way here. And so we just need to be open and honest. I don't know what to do as a dad. I don't know what to do as a husband. I don't know what to do in my job. Whatever it would be, could you pray for me? That opens up the door to care for one another. And as pastors, we're called to lead and we're called to care, but but. Ephesians tells us one of our primary jobs is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip Christians, church members, to care for one another. So we're to admonish, say go after each other, care for one another, spend time with one another, ask one another how, how it's going. And in a growing church of any size, there's no way a few pastors can adequately care for a growing church. That that was never God's design. We're to care for one another. This may seem unrelated, but it will hopefully connect. At least it does in my mind. Jason Kidd, a few of you hopefully know who he is. He is a very well-known, at least in my circles, uh, NBA point guard. He just turned 40 years old, and he was a number two draft pick in 1994. And as prime... He was one of the best point guards to ever play the game of basketball. He's played 19 consecutive years. So when he played basketball, 
his primary task was to make the people around him better. And he did that very effectively. Well, he just retired, and now he just got hired as the head coach of the New Jersey Nets. So what that means is this very skilled, highly intelligent point guard is now going to expand his influence in a much broader way to equip many, many, many young men that will come through his program to be much more effective. Well, that's kind of the idea as pastors. We're to be equipping regularly. We need to do personal care as well. But to be effective, we need to be equipping one another to do the work of ministry. Well, how do we care for one another? What are some of the things that Paul tells us to do in this passage? The first one might seem a little strong, but in verse 14 he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, or that can be translated, admonish the unruly or the disorderly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. How do we admonish the idle? Who are the idle? In Thessalonians, at least one group that fell into this was the lazy, or those who were just kind of Christians but in neutral. And they, they loved when pastors taught on being generous because they would mooch off the generous people in the church. So they were healthy, they were fit, they were able to work, but they thought, man, this is great, I get a free ride in life from all the generosity of the church members. And Paul would say, admonish that man or woman. Tell them to go work, get Get a job. And this is assuming they're physically able to do it. But it can also mean those who are living rebellious Christian lives. That that is disorderly. It's rebellious. We're to admonish them. That, That word means to strongly, caution, warn, correct someone who is living in a way that's out of step with God's design. It's a strong word. Parents, those of you who have toddlers, Here's the image I want you to get in your mind. If your toddler is about to, you're out at a campfire and they're about to, to touch the flame, what do you do? You strongly admonish them. You say, back up, don't touch. You're not angry, but you're doing it in a strong way. What you wouldn't do is say, honey, I know that flame is very attractive. Let's just talk about that a little bit and think about it and see how close you should get to it. Uh, no, you would admonish them. Do not touch that. Or if they're carrying a fork around and they see an outlet, an electrical outlet, and they're about to stick it in, you don't say, you know what, honey, I know that fork looks like it fits in there, but that's not a good idea. You say, no, don't do that. You're going to harm yourself. Well, that's the idea of admonishing one another. And if we are going to be faithful church members to one another, if a brother or sister is out of step, with a clear teaching of God's Word in a pronounced way, they need admonished. They need to say, stop! This is not good for your soul. This will be harmful for the name of Jesus. It's a strong admonishment. Maybe one of the clearest examples of this in the Bible is, the Bible says very strong things to, to men and women who are contemplating adultery, who are thinking about being unfaithful and breaking their marriage covenant. What, what is not helpful at that time if, if a friend confides in you and is right on the edge of the cliff or who has crossed over to say, you know, I understand how you got there. I understand she's 
not doing the things you want or he's not doing the things you want. But listen to what God says in Proverbs about this very situation. Proverbs chapter 6. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. That's a strong warning. And that's not just our jobs as pastors. That's our job as a church family, as brothers and sisters. If you are on the cliff and you confess it, that is great. You're you're at a great start. But it's also going to be helpful when your godly brother or sister says, do not do it. It will never satisfy. It will always have terrible consequences. And it will mar the name of Jesus. Now there's hope for you. If you've crossed over that edge and you have sinned in that way or many other gross to God ways, there's great hope in Jesus. He died for sinners. He paid for all of our sins. So we shouldn't be condemned. If you have repented, come to your senses like the prodigal son and are following Jesus. Praise God for that. Because the warning in Proverbs is you, you may not return. So the fact that you returned is something to celebrate. So how else do we encourage one another? We're to admonish. Paul then says, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. We're to encourage those who are weary among us, who are burdened, who are saddened, who have suffered loss in in a variety of ways, who, who are prone to worry, who are just weak in faith and and just don't have much strength. So when someone talks to you and they're in that category, don't admonish them. Don't rebuke them. Don't say, turn the frown upside down. No, they need care and encouragement and patience from you. And you want to share a verse like Isaiah 42, 3 with them. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. In other words, if there's a bruised branch, God's not going to snap it. If there's a smoldering wick, if there's just a little bit of spark of flame, He's going to fan that flame. He's not going to quench it and stop it. He's going to help you. If you use the imagery of Jesus, the chief shepherd, and you're a sheep, and you feel weak and faint-hearted and you can't keep up, what does Jesus do? He goes after you. He picks you up. He carries you. And so you need the help and encouragement of others. But to receive that, we have to be honest with where we're at. We're weak. We're faint-hearted. We need help. Very closely related is the next way to care. Help the weak. We're to help the weak. It's similar to faint-hearted, but the idea of the weakness here is someone who is just, if it was a our body, we would just be so physically weak. We just can't stand. We can't, we can't do it. We need help. God's given us the Bible, His Spirit, and His people. And we're His people to help one another when you are weak. When you can't do it. When you need the faith of others to say, hey, I, I know God is going to help you. 
We are praying for you. I remember when you first met Jesus. He is not going to leave you. He will make sure you make it to the end. Or to help. And then, God realizes this is difficult for us. So He says, at the end of 14, be patient with them all. This is directed to all of us as a church family. Be patient with them all. So, a church member is on the brink of major sin. We want to admonish. We want to go after. But we want to be patient. Someone is so faint-hearted and has been like that for a long time. And maybe that's just not been your Christian experience. That's not your personality. You're a go-getter. You, you, you haven't had a faint-hearted day in your Christian walk. Well, the idea isn't just run ahead and just forget about them. No, it's be patient with them. They need your strong encouragement and joy and help. And it's the same with the weak as well. Be patient with them all. So this, this stuff begins to stack and it begins to feel very weighty. So, so how do we do all this? Well, that brings us to the third point. Instruction for church life. Spend time with the Lord. We need to spend time with our God, with our Savior. Look at verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know what God's will for you is? To rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Easier said than done. No doubt. I had lunch with a friend this week and, and he was just being open and honest about his life and asking me questions like, Joe, I'm sure you have difficult conversations at church and pressures as a pastor. And, and how, do you, how, do, how are you smiling at times? How, how do you do it? And I said, well, I don't know if I do it well at all, but one thing that I have done often, and I do regularly, is just spend lots and lots of time in Philippians chapter 4, which is basically the extended version of verses 16 17 and 18. So if you look at my Bible, and we imagine that there's different verses that are past that we walk on. I have walked on Philippians 4, 4 through 7, uh, so often that there's not a little weed even growing up because it is so packed down because I'm so desperate for my need for the Lord. So Paul gives us the expanded version. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. As we spend time with the Lord, it it just changes us. So I have so often come to that passage, anxious, worried, fearful, Lord, the very first thing you tell me to do is rejoice. I want to rejoice. I want to worry. I want to think. I want to fear. I want to rejoice. How do I rejoice? Well, the rejoicing isn't just be happy, but it's rejoice in the God of the universe who is your Father, who sent His Son to live for you and die for you, who gave you His Spirit, the God who never changes. We rejoice in Him. We always have Him as Christians. Sometimes we lose sight, but we Always have Him. And we need to remember that. The psalmist 
David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. We're to delight and rejoice in God because He's good. There's to be experience of His goodness by His Spirit, through His Word, with His people. And that's why we want to rejoice together. That's why I love singing as a church on Sunday mornings. One of the things I like a lot to eat is cheesecake. It tastes great. I was trying to think this morning. When was the last or the first piece of cheesecake I ever ate? I can't remember, but I know I was hooked at the beginning. And I know, I think my mom made it. So, my taste buds just came alive for whatever that perfect combination is in cheesecake. And so when I see cheesecake, I'm excited. I like it. And it's to be the same experience with our relationship with the Lord. There's to be an experience. And at times, you know, our, our vision gets dulled and we forget and our circumstances overwhelm us. But as we see what this Word says about our God, and we sing these incredible truths about God, it just, it just oh yeah, that's it. That's who Jesus is. He is for me. My huge circumstances are actually very small from His perspective. And He is so for me. And He wants us to delight and rejoice in Him. Leon Morris, a commentator, said this about this passage. He said, The note of joy rings throughout the New Testament. The note of joy. It's not a superficial happiness, but if we really believe what this book says, there can be a deep, resting, lasting joy that should ring in our hearts. I thought, what a prayer for our church, that the note of joy would ring loud in our church. So how do we seek the Lord? We, we rejoice always, we delight in God, we pray without ceasing. Well, that's a great impossible command, isn't it? Pray without ceasing. So imagine this, you go to work tomorrow morning, your boss says, hey, did you place those orders? Did you, uh, did you have that meeting you're supposed to have? No, I was just praying. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. I'm a Christian, so I'm just going to pray a lot. So later in the day, he checks on you. Did you, did you call that person you're supposed to call? No, I was, I was praying. It was great. I'm so encouraged by praying. And then by the end of the day, your boss says, you know what? You have a lot of time to pray. You are fired from this job. So that's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul is talking about is just a continual awareness of God. That we are aware of our need for God. We're aware that we are in God's universe. It is His, not ours. We are, are mindful of Him. As Bob Mundorf was going through my notes, he said, you know, it's sort of like your Wi-Fi signal on your computer. Like It's always connected. At times you're online, at times you're not. But, but it's always connected. That's, that's how we should be as Christians. God's Spirit is in us. So you're driving to work. It's a beautiful Sunday. Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. Hard situation pops up. Lord, I need help. I have no idea what to do. Help me. And that is just a continual dependence on the Lord. And as we do that, one of the supernatural things that will happen is we will have the ability, as he says at the end of this verse, to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That is supernatural. We do not naturally give thanks in all circumstances. Now, every person that wins the lottery, they initially give thanks. You know, that's easy. But everyone who suffers loss and tragedy and hardship, that, that's not natural. But when we spend time with the Lord, 
this supernatural response that we're able to, Lord, I thank You that You are good and in charge and working all things for my good. And I trust You. Lord, it's hard. It's confusing. But I trust You. So we're to seek Him. These are hard things. The next thing. Instruction for church life. Do not quench the Spirit. So Paul just told us to pursue the Spirit, to rejoice in the Spirit. Now he's going to say, don't quench the Spirit. Don't turn off the Spirit. Verses 19-22. through 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The idea of quenching something is if you're working outside and it's really hot and you're very thirsty, you, you drink a glass of water and it, it takes away the thirst. That's a positive description of quenching something. Or if you have a campfire and you want to put it out for the night, you pour water on top of it. You quench it. Well, Paul tells us as a church family, don't intentionally do things that quench the Spirit. Well, what are some of those things? When we sin secretly in an ongoing way and live a double life as a Christian, that quenches the Spirit. When we are proud about our accomplishments, either as individuals or or as a church, that quenches the Spirit. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. When we don't believe God's promises, that can quench the Spirit. And then He gives us a sort of an unexpected one that I wouldn't think of if I was writing it. He says, 19, do not quench the Spirit. And then he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So apparently in this church, there's a group of people in the church that as Timothy visited them and came back, they, they didn't like the gift of prophecy, which is when God speaks to an individual Christian and they, they have something for the church to encourage and to build up, something the Lord has revealed to them. It's subject to this book, but it's a real gift that is present. And he says, don't despise that gift. Carefully test it. Think about it. Weigh it with the Bible. But don't despise it. And the reason he does that is because that gift, like every gift we have, is from God Himself. It is from God the Holy Spirit. To to despise a gift from God is not far from despising God. So we want to be Careful with those things. And so Paul says about the gift of prophecy, pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So we don't want to do anything, and I I know that's your heart, you don't want to do anything that quenches the Spirit. And then he gives this overarching idea of what not to do. He says, abstain from every form of evil. So just evil in any form you can think of, if we pursue it and dive into it, it it quenches God's work among us. It doesn't just affect you as an individual. It can affect us all. And so this is just to stir us to, to not quench the Spirit as we pursue the Lord. Now as all this stacks, it feels like weights that are beginning to, to pile up on us And that's why I love how he ends this section. He gives us one final instruction, which can be summed up as, rest in the power and faithfulness of God. 
So do all I just commanded you to do, God would say, but do it in my power and strength. So Paul prays this prayer for that church. He says, Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. In other words, when you became a Christian, you were set apart. And now, that's to be worked out in our lives. He says, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls us is faithful. I loved how Tim shared today, he applied Philippians 1.6 to us as a church family, that he who began the good work among us will complete it. God will be faithful to help us. God will be faithful to help us obey our leaders and respect them appropriately when we don't want to. God will be faithful to help us to admonish one another when you feel so sick in your stomach. You know it's the right thing to do, but you're afraid to do it. God will help you. God will help you care for the faint-hearted or the weak. Or if you are the faint-hearted or the weak, God will help you to be honest and humble and ask for help. God will give you both the strength and the desire to spend time with Him as you ask. God will help you to flee from the things that could quench His Spirit. God, who calls you, is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray and the band can come up. Lord, we just rest in You. We trust You. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for Your power. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for every one that You have assembled here today. Lord, help us to spring lots of honor and glory to You. And Lord, we don't want to do this in our own strength. We need You. And so Lord, would You encourage us all as we sing this final song. Lord, we ask this in Your name. Amen. You guys can stand.